This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison. No one dreams of taking their son to rehab. And it is our nightmare to imagine finding our son overdosed, unconscious, or so drunk that he can't stand up. But the truth is that addiction, alcoholism, substance use disorder can happen to anyone. And today we're going to talk about some very positive strategies that you can use to help increase your son's chances of staying healthy throughout his life. Regardless of the age of your son, there are always concerns. And as parents, we sometimes feel so alone. The struggle is real and we are here to support you through this podcast, through Jen's work, through my work as a family coach. If you are struggling, if you are feeling alone, I encourage you to sign up for a free breakthrough session call with me. You just have to go to boysalive.com call. We'll get on the phone for 30 minutes or so, and we'll talk about where you are, where you'd like to be, and how to get you there. Again, that's a breakthrough session call with me, Janet. Go to boysalive.com call and I look forward to talking with you. No one dreams of taking their son to rehab or arguing with him repeatedly about his use of pot or alcohol or meth. And it is literally our nightmare to find our beautiful boy overdosed, unconscious. And so we don't think about those things most of the time. When our babies are little, we kind of tell ourselves that, you know what, we are going to be such great parents. We are going to do everything right. And our sons are going to avoid alcoholism and addiction. None of us look at our beautiful baby boys and and see that as their future. But it is simply not true that substance use disorder doesn't happen to good kids or kids of good parents. Statistics tell us that 24% of eighth graders, eighth graders have had at least one drink by eighth grade. And statistics further show that of those who are drinking at that age, about 50% of them drink heavily. 
And there's some evidence to suggest that boys might be particularly at risk. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, children who struggle in school when they are between ages seven and nine are more likely to be using addictive substances by 14 or 15. I know a lot of you right now are going, oh, wait, that's my kid. But there is good news. We have good news for you. The positive parenting strategies that you use to help your son thrive can also protect him from substance use disorder. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Our guest is Jessica Leahy. She is the author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Jess is also the author of The Gift of Failure. She is an educator. She is the mother of two boys, and she is an alcoholic. Thank you for joining us, Jess. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is not easy to admit publicly or privately that <laughs> you are an alcoholic, that you have a substance yeah. use issue. And in your book, you write about the, the first time you said that you vomited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually think it was harder privately than publicly, mainly because by the time I went public, I'd had some time to sit with it. And I'd been sober for a while by the time I went public. I actually went, I wrote a piece right after I got sober, but it was anonymous. By the time I went public, I was I was fine with it. But I forget, of course, that a lot of other people didn't know that. I forgot, of course, that when I handed my husband my new book to read for the first time, there was stuff that he didn't know in there. So it's sort of like when you have a fender bender in the morning and by the time your partner comes home from work, you're totally cool with it. You've gotten (laughs) over it. And you're like, why can't you just be over it suddenly? And the person is like, well, but this is news to me. So there are all these moments along the way where people are surprised I think it's so powerful that you start the book with that, because first of all, as a writer myself, I know that you always have to convince a publisher, I am the right person to write this book, (laughs) right? Yeah. You are an educator. You are a parent. You worked with children who have had substance use disorder and issues. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you understand it from the personal side. You understand the family history. And the very fact that we are picking up a book with your name on it says, and she turned out okay. There's, there is something really wonderful when your life experience intersects with your interests and the things that are relevant to you. And and that's where people should be writing from is from that intersection. Well, and talk about that life experience because you had for your younger son, you had this major move happening. It's challenging to move at Mm -hmm. any time, but moving in those high school years is difficult. Mm -hmm. That really became apparent of how you can help him settle in a new community when you don't have that community safety net Mm -hmm. had before. I think it's really the way the book is structured is really in terms of, you know, the one of those old timey scales of justice with risk on one side and protection on the other. It's understood right now, thanks to people like Mark Shook at at University of Southern California, that genetics are about 50 to 60% of the risk picture for people with substance use disorder. And, but on the other hand, genetics is not destiny. So once I know that my kids automatically have this, you know, higher level of risk then, and I know for, I know from my life experience that genetics aren't destiny either, because my husband is a completely normal, regular old moderate drinker. And he comes from the same, if not worse genetics than I do. And so we both have it on, we have it on both sides of our family. So 
okay, so I've been, you know, doing all this work, trying to figure this out with my own kids. I know our risk side is a little heavier because of the genetics. And then I started, you know, inadvertently adding things like the move and things like that. And, you know, once the, I think the really important thing that I want people to know about this book is the last thing I want people to do ever is to feel bad, guilty, shame for the risk factors that their kids face, whether it's because of things we've done on purpose or because of things we've done inadvertently or things we can't help at all, like our genetics. Um, I, what I want is for people to read this book and feel empowered. So if we understand that if we know the risks and we're really clear-eyed about our kids' risks, we can really target the prevention more specifically and get them a lot long, get them closer to that place where the, the sides of the scale zero out. So yeah, moving was a big deal. Moving my kid away from um, families that I knew and trusted, moving him away from his friends. And that was really, really challenging. And that just, that was just information for me. And the last thing, the thing that's not going to help is if I just feel bad about it and then just try to ignore it. You got to address those things and find the protection to outweigh it. Let's talk about those risks and understanding Mm -hmm. and honestly facing those risks a little bit. You said genetics, about half or so of the risk factor. And so many of us have that genetic risk. Mm -hmm. I know it's in my family. I know it's in my boy's dad's family. You talk about in your book, you know, the importance of being straight up with your kids about this. Like this increases your risk factor. You also write in the book about the importance of honesty, that Mm -hmm. one of the challenges with substance use is that we don't talk about it honestly, that uh, it's the elephant in the room that nobody's acknowledging, you know, dad is tired, she needs a nap, all those things. And so here's my question, and I am asking this totally as a parent who happens to be a <laughs> podcaster, so I get to, right? How do you do that and have those conversations when doing so means also disclosing a story Mm -hmm. that might not be yours. For instance, I was thinking about this as we were getting on today. Not only stories that might not be yours, but that really, I think one of the scariest questions that many parents face is what do I do about the fact that I did use drugs and alcohol when I was in college or I had that lost year with all the pot, that kind of thing. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning. You talked to, you asked about risk. So genetics is 50 to 60% of it. There's an analogy that I hate and simultaneously love, which is that uh, genetics are the bullet that goes in the gun and the trigger is trauma. So we've got genetics, we've got this thing called epigenetics, which is a combination of genetics and environment, Um, the stressors, the things that happen to us in our life for better or for worse, um, affect how genes are expressed in the body. So there's, there's that sliver there. Um, And then we have adverse childhood experiences, um, which include big T trauma and little T trauma, big S stress, that kind of thing. And those include the, if you go and you Google uh, CDC and ACEs, Mm -hmm. A-C-E and small s, you can take a quiz actually and find out what your ACE score is. And the higher your ACE score, the more likely you are to have substance use disorder during your lifetime. Um, There are some slight gender differences here and there, um, but they include things like violence in the home, an uh, incarcerated parent, uh, a parent with a substance, use dis- substance use disorder in the home, death of a parent, um, divorce and, uh, and separation are on there. And so when I start mentioning things like divorce and separation, people start going, oh, well, you know, but that's 50% of first marriages and in divorce or separation. And 
I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad or to throw, you know, some big R for risk on you to wear like a scarlet letter. I'm saying this is good information to have so we can address it. Um, adoption is on that list. If you look at, on, not on the CDC's list, but if you look at Nadine Burke Harris's work it, with the book, The Deepest Well, she Highly is- Highly recommend, by the way. Oh I'll my put a gosh, link in the show so notes good. It's an excellent so read good. for anybody who wants to understand more about how to help mm -hmm. kids be healthy, happy, whole yep. humans. So she has an expanded ACEs list based on her experience and her practice in California. Um, and, you know, adoption is on there. Uh, Candy Finnegan, who you may know from the show Intervention, she does a lot of work around substance abuse and, and adoption. She herself is adopted. And so it's an interest of interest to her. I talk, I do talk about a little bit adoption, about adoption in the book, those adverse childhood experiences. And then some of the things you mentioned, uh, academic failure is, uh, is a risk factor for substance use disorder during your lifetime. Untreated ADHD yeah. is a huge yeah. one, especially for our and, audience. Yeah. And not just untreated either treated as well, yeah. but untreated carries extra risk as well. Child on child aggression is another big one. Um, social ostracism. And you can also see how some of those risk factors I just mentioned get sort of inextricably linked together, tied up, and it's, it's hard to tease apart which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. So all of those risk factors, we need to be thinking about early intervention. We need to be thinking about, you know, helping kids without getting too freaked out about, you know, oh, my kid's not reading by the time they go to kindergarten. This is a, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual real academic issues, not us freaking out a little bit too much kind of thing. So anyway, those risk factors really, and, and I did mention that there are some, um, some interesting gender issues in there. Like for example, among girls, um, sexual abuse is a massive, massive risk factor for um, substance abuse. So keeping those and in I mind. Have to imagine that it is for boys as well. I know that, Oh yeah. you know, yeah. in your research, it, it, that's not been studied as strong of a link, but we also know from other work that's recently been done from mm -hmm. Emma Brown's excellent mm -hmm. new book to yep. raise a boy. Sexual abuse of boys has been under-recognized. Oh, absolutely. For years. And if, I mean, absolutely. if there's anything that's going to drive you towards a substance, like, I think we can yep. all understand that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and the problem is, is that when you look at the literature, there's just more work that's been done on, on that. In, yeah, But that's a really fantastic point. The other interesting thing is that there's some work that shows that women, girls, women uh, tend to drink for different reasons too. For example, women do tend to have anxiety at higher rates. Women tend to drink to mask, deal with, you know, numb out anxiety. And actually women with anxiety issues are more likely to drink in a problematic way than in a moderate or normal way. So mm. quote unquote, normal way. So there's all kinds of interesting gender issues to think about there as well. The second part of the question was, as you are having these discussions with your children, especially in terms of family history and personal right. experiences, oh, right. yeah. uh, disclosure, you know, yeah. how much do you share? And yeah. I, I'm thinking about my family tree and I know, well, this person, uh, and mm -hmm. I can talk about that one. Well, this one's been in rehab, both for alcohol mm -hmm. and drugs, but mm -hmm. I don't know if they want me to tell my kids that. So at a, so at a certain point in our house, anyway, discussions about, we can't afford to not talk about it. I mean, mm -hmm. part of what made me sick in the first place was the shame and guilt and the secrecy around being, being, you know, drinking too much myself or an, uh, my, one of my parents drinking too much and uh, other relatives. So in our family, it is, 
wide open. We talk about it. We talk about the mental illness. And my feeling is, is that that is such important information for our children to have since understanding that they are at a higher risk from the beginning is one of the most important things they can use as a way to justify not partaking, not drinking, mm-hmm. not, not trying drugs, that kind of thing. So I tend to, think of my um, sharing stories in terms of like what I share publicly, I'm very careful about, but what I share privately in our family is um, we're wide open with that. Plus it helps them have a really good understanding of the consequences. You know, we've had holidays ruined um, because of an episode of, of, you know, substance use. And it was a really horrible holiday. It ruined it for everyone. It was very traumatic for some of the kids and talking about that, it helps them see in a very clear way what can happen. And also what, you know, what it means that I am sober and that we've tried that, you know, the, one of the reasons I got sober was to help them face with a very clear eye also what's happening with them. So I, I don't worry. I honestly do not worry about other relatives, what, you know, what they're going to worry about, because that is part of the whole secrecy thing is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, one of the other big sticking points for parents with both, it's sort of like the sex talk and the substance abuse yep. talk are just so <laughs> yeah. scary. But I will tell you that anyone who is, who's not afraid of those topics probably started when their kids were pretty little. So this conversation about substances starts in preschool. It starts when kids are incredibly young and no, you're not talking about, you know, crystal methamphetamine. You're talking about, (laughs) you're, you're talking about, you know, why you spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it, why you don't put Tide Pods in your mouth. I got, I got a text this morning. I was talking about this on another podcast and I got a text this morning from the host of that podcast because someone texted him to say, you know, I really enjoyed that conversation you had with Jessica Leahy. And she talked about, you know, how to talk to kids about prescriptions and why, you know, mommy's name is on that prescription bottle and not daddy's. And what if daddy needed, what if you, the kid needed the same prescription that mommy needs. Why can't you just take mommy's prescription? You know, that kind of conversation. And he said, um, the kids not only absorbed it, but when they went to the pharmacy later on that week, there was a mistake with one of the prescriptions and they caught it because the kids, they were talking about it. It was a conversation that they were talking about and they looked at the labels and they looked at the name and that kind of stuff. And so it was in a very real way. So we can simultaneously decrease healthcare errors by involving our children (laughs) in this discussion. So talking about things super early, like, you know, that conversation about why we don't take medicines that don't have our name on them is so important because later on, you know, the majority of parents know there's research on this, a survey on this, the majority of parents know that the place where kids first get opiates is in your or someone else's medicine cabinet. And yet only 10% of parents talk about the dangers of taking opiates out of someone's medicine cabinet. So Mm. there's this huge disconnect between, yeah, 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 we know. But either we're saying, okay, well, that conversation is too scary for me because I smoked a lot of pot when I was in college, or I don't, you know, I did do a lot of keg stands when I was in that frat, when I was at, you know, whatever school. So that's scary. Talking to kids about um, substances is scary because we don't want to seem out of touch or stupid. We don't want to seem square to our kids. Like, you know, oh, you're just some teetotaler, da, 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 da. But, you know, erring in the other direction 
Um, one of the experts I interviewed for this book freely admits that he screwed this up. Like he wanted to seem cool to his kids. So he overly romanticized what he had done when he was in college and all the things he tried. And his, one of his kids came back to him in his twenties and he was like, yeah, you dad, you kind of blew it on that one because you made it seem like a lot of fun. And I wanted to try those things, but I can tell you right now that, you know, the two books I love most about the sex stuff is Peggy Orenstein's books, boys and sex Mm -hmm. and girls and sex. And I can tell you right now, I bet you the conversations in Peggy's uh, house flow really easily. The conversations in our house flow really easily because we can't afford for them not to. Yeah, It's just a part of my children's legacy. And so not to, I, you know, if I were to keep things secret or not talk about it, that's at my peril, at their peril. Really. Yeah. So for all our listeners out there who are going, oh my gosh, it's too late. I, my kids <laughs> are teen already late. and I haven't had these discussions and you know I think we're up against to this uh invincibility that teens have you of know course. this it's like oh that's not going to happen to me I mean right. we can talk about genetics till we're blue in mm-hmm. the face but they're right. they're like no that's not going to be me I like cute clothes I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping armoire makes getting dressed easier Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash on boys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me. So I'm 51. She's 41. And she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, Increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. 
Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A.com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. So right. get get practical. Mm-hmm. Yep. What it's Saturday night, the party's mm-hmm. going on. What's the conversation before they leave the house? So the great so there's a um a bit a piece in the book where I talk very specifically. Um the reason the word first let's back up a second. The reason the word inoculation is in the title is because of inoculation theory. And inoculation theory shows that when you protect kids by giving them actual ammunition, empowering them, making them feel like they have a sense of self-efficacy with information about not only excuses they can give when they don't want to drink. And there's three pages on that, like everything from, you know, people with uh, some people actually get this flushing syndrome. There is such a thing as allergy to alcohol, gluten intolerance. You know, we're in this, Ooh, no gluten kind of thing. Well, great. That means beer is out of the question. Um, There are some people who are actually allergic to wine. You, if you're on certain medications, you can't take it. You know, there's all kinds of excuses. You She's can got give. good excuses in there. They're yeah, good excuses. Good. So there's, so in, when you empower kids, not only with excuses for how they can have an exit strategy, and you also empower them with real information to rebut things like, oh, come on, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. You know, if the kid is in eighth grade and that kid knows that, well, actually only 24% of kids in eighth grade admit that they've tried alcohol by the end of eighth grade, that's really powerful information. It's, it's information that can rebut. Research on inoculation theory shows that when you empower kids with information to rebut one high-risk behavior, such as substance use, you actually also empower them against other high-risk behaviors like sex before they're ready or, you know, speeding or get, you know, riding with a drunk driver. These things generalize. So, and when they generalize, the other cool thing about inoculation theory is when we empower kids with real data, information about how their brains work and why specifically we're not talking about adult drug and alcohol use here. We're talking about adolescent drug and alcohol use, which has a much bigger impact, negative impact on the brain than it does in adulthood. In fact, there are some drugs that have, you know, relatively almost no risk in an adult brain, very low risk in an adult brain, but in adolescent's brain can have very significant, can do very significant um, damage, Mm -hmm. some of it permanent. When we give them that information and when we give them these refusal skills, not only do we raise the chances that they will use those refusal skills, they will feel empowered enough and actually use those refusal skills. We up the chances that they will talk to us about having used those refusal skills. And then there's Mm. this generalizing thing that is really, really important as well. So start there, start with 
refusal skills start with talking, having a family contract about the fact that if, you know, if someone you're with is drinking, you can call us, no questions asked, we'll come and get you. And we will not talk about it until, you know, the next day. Um, or if you're drunk and you need a ride, won't talk about it till the next day. Having conversations in that context about, you know, yeah, you screwed up. So how are we going to prevent this from happening again? That once, mm -hmm. if your kid is trying drugs and alcohol, that doesn't mean like, forget it. It's all is lost. We might as well give up on this whole prevention mm -hmm. thing. It's all mm -hmm. over. There's no like, you know, in, in recovery, there's sort of, some people have this thought that if you relapse, well, that's it, it's all over. You know, you have to start at day zero again, kind of thing. And that's, um, while that's what keeps me sober, one of the things that keeps me sober, it's also in a weird way, what can also keep some people sick it is because sense. they feel like if they relapse, well, it's blown anyway, I might as well really blow it, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. These conversations are hard. I acknowledge that they're hard. So I give scripts in the book for kids, young kids, you know, yep. middle school age kids all the way up to college to help people give kids the, the tools they need in order to understand and have real data and be informed. And when we give them credit for being able to make some good decisions when they have, when they are informed, that's important. And one last thing I want to add, Teens can feel in like they're invincible. Absolutely. I do want to rebut one common thing I hear, which is that kids just don't understand the consequences of their actions. And that is absolutely not true. Kids actually have a very good understanding of the, of the possible consequences of their actions. It's just that adolescents, because of the where they are in their brain development, weigh the possible positive consequences, benefits, whatever, more heavily than the possible negative consequences. And that has to do with the way their brains are and wired. And so from a teenage boy standpoint, right. the possible positives of drinking at that party seem way more likely yeah. than the negatives mm -hmm. because yeah, I'm right. going to get social approval. I'm going right. to be comfortable here that I might be able to, you know, kiss that girl right. over there. Right. Um, and, you know, yeah, I might crash my car, but probably not. Right. Well, and keep in mind, of course, the other important thing it is to remember, and this, these are pieces of information that I love because each piece of information, like the one I'm about to tell you, helps me understand my kid from the, from the perspective of my kid, as opposed to like some, from some adult perspective, mm -hmm. adolescents have at baseline, lower levels of dopamine than children and adults. Dopamine is the thing that makes us it's, it's drive, it's motivation. It's the thing that makes us get up in the morning. So when adolescents say, oh, I'm so bored, it's not their lack of imagination. It's not their lack of get up and go. It is the fact that they have at baseline lower levels of dopamine. And the problem with drugs and alcohol is that when you take a sub, you know, there are lots of, we have opiates that are sort of in our body that we have the same sort of chemicals that are in pot in our body all the time, but we never in the concentrations that come in the purified form of the drug. And so our bodies can't compete with that. So once we plug that pure form in, um, you know, you've sort of gone straight to the source, filled up all the receptors in a way that, um, you know, we just can't compete with from a One natural perspective. One of the things I love related that you point out in the book, mm -hmm. you know, yes, this, this lowering of dopamine is perfectly natural, perfectly normal during adolescence. Yeah. And it's on purpose in that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, this yes. is how our young people go out and try things and have yeah. that courage to do things. So 
very relevant to our listeners. Mm -hmm. Say yes to some of the (laughs) risky things that you're currently saying no to because our kids do need an outlet for that. They need healthy ways to get that dopamine up. And so sometimes you don't think it all through at the time, but we may be putting the, no, you can't do this on something that is obviously much safer than, you know, trying drugs with my friends out in the woods, but I'm uncomfortable with this risk. So I say no and increase the risk of something else. Right. I had a really uh, eye-opening conversation with Dr. Dan Siegel because I said to him, you know, this whole move thing has freaked me out. It's all this stress and it's all this, you know, we've moved him, blah, 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 all the things that were negative about the move. And he said, well, how about this? Let's turn it around. Let's reframe this for mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Kids, adolescents need, uh, they crave novelty. A lot of people like to say adolescents crave risk. And I think that's inaccurate. What adolescents novelty. crave is novelty. And that, as you said, is essential because they're individuating, they're pulling apart from us, they're pulling away from us, and they need to learn how to manage life out there in the adult world. So it's essential that they chase down novelty and some risk, which because novelty comes with risk. So any opportunity we can have to push our kids into things that have some positive risk associated with them. And especially anytime you can say, as you said, Jennifer, anything you can say yes to that introduces some positive risk into their life that is, sure, it may be a little risky, but it's not as risky as some other things they may turn to if they're never allowed to take any Mm -hmm. risk whatsoever. And I'd also like to slide this into the conversation. Kids who are more controlled by their parents, kids who are highly controlled by their parents, they lie to their parents more. They're more deceptive because they need to individuate. So it's such an essential function of adolescence that if they don't get it from their parents one way, they will be deceptive in order to achieve it. And I talk to kids all the time. Why are you lying about this silly stuff? Like, you know, being at the deli versus being at the coffee shop. And some kids are like, look, I need some freedom somewhere. And if I got to take it from somewhere, I got to have something that's mine and they'll take it through deception if we don't give that that to them as well. Janet, what was your policy when your girls were growing up? There's so much debate and discussion. Is it healthier to let them drink at home, to introduce (laughs) them to drinking with the family or to say, nope, we're not going to do that here and take our chances on, you know, what happens out in the world? Well, I came from a family of teetotalers, so my parents (laughs) did not drink. The the only alcohol I ever saw past my dad's lip was the celebratory champagne on the flight back from Britain when he was 90 years old. And and when he asked asked for a second sip, I about died. I couldn't believe it. So funny. And I do. I mean, Jen, my, my girls' high school years were very calm when my oldest was in ninth grade and I'm like, go to the party, go to the party. She didn't want to go to the party because she knew what was going to go on there. So I'm like, go, go. And she's, she was, no, she already had a strong radar for that. That just wasn't interesting to either one of them. So I count my count my lucky stars on there. But to your point, there are some families that are like, you know, dad's going to give the little, little toddler a drink of beer, or you can have a little small glass of wine at the meal. And Jessica, what do you say to that? 
is that okay? It's like, give them a little taste and then they won't really want it. Mm -hmm. So we, um, that's how my older, how we raised our older child, um, because this was before I'd done the research for the book. Um, I was very, I was all in on the whole romantic, you know, European ideal of, oh, we'll raise our child like the French. They'll have some alcohol with, I'd spent time, I'd lived in Italy for a while. So yeah, we'll raise our kid like an Italian kid where he gets watered down wine, blah, blah, blah. We didn't go quite that far, but we did, my kid did get to sip. And what's really clear in the research, and let me just split this into two categories. Adolescent drinking is a bad idea for two very different reasons. One is because of the damage it can do to the brain um, in in adolescence because of the increased plasticity of the adolescent brain. The other is about reducing risk for substance use disorder during their lifetime. So those are, uh, uh, when it comes to those two ideas, number one, there isn't really a safe amount of alcohol for a kid, let alone drugs for a kid to ingest during um, just during adolescence, just as you wouldn't give a zero to two year old alcohol, because same thing, they're having an, the other, the two big periods of plasticity are zero to two and adolescence. But here's the interesting part. The research shows really clearly that when parents have a consistent message of total abstinence until it is legal, which coincidentally, not coincidentally, um, is when the brain is finally just about done developing and everything is hooked up the way it's supposed to be and the risk falls in terms of uh, damage to the brain. When parents have a consistent message of no, not until it is legal, their kids are a lot less likely to have substance use disorder during their lifetime. There is a causation correlation issue there and there's confounding factors because in your family, so for example, if you grew up in a teetotaling family, of course you would be less likely to try it before. You probably have, your genetics are different, you know, so there's causation correlation stuff. But with every single year that passes during adolescence, Mm -hmm risk of lifetime risk of substance use disorder falls. So, you know, when you look at the fact that 90% of people who have a substance use disorder report that they started drinking or using drugs before age 18, if a kid in um, eighth grade starts using drugs and alcohol, then their risk of having a substance use disorder during their lifetime is somewhere around 50%. Um, if you get them to 10th grade, it goes down to 17%. And if you get them to 18, it goes down to 10%. And 10% is sort of the population average. So really, I mean, I'm going to say not until it's legal, but you know, 18, if we can just, the, the message yes. should be delay, delay, delay. So unfortunately in my house, unfortunately for my younger child, that means he's living under different rules than his brother lived under. Mm -hmm. But here's an opportunity. I am modeling exactly what I want to see in them, which is I was doing my best based on the information I had. I learned something new. And so to be the best parent, the best person, the best informed person I can be, I'm changing the rules now because what I know now is that I would be not as good of a parent in terms of fulfilling my job around substance use disorder prevention if I did anything else. Mm -hmm. So while he doesn't like it, this is the reality in our home. And it's based on the fact that I learned something and I'm trying to do better based on what I've learned. And that's all I could ever ask from him. I -hmm. have to ask a really hard question that is not going to have a neat and easy answer. It's great if you and the other parent agree on those Mm -hmm. rules. Yep. Um, if the two parents don't agree on those rules, and especially if there's, you know, one parent lives at this house Mm -hmm. and the other parent lives at this house, uh, 
Yeah. Then when it what, comes, Jessica? when it comes to both, when it comes to both the stuff I talk about with gift of failure, you know, autonomy, supportive parenting, all that stuff. Yeah. And this stuff, this is one of the hardest questions I get mm-hmm. because there isn't an easy answer, but I'm going to tell you right now that 50% of the picture being on the, in the right place in terms of messaging is better than none of us being in the right place it's a in good terms answer. of messaging. Yeah. So my sister is divorced. I don't know what's happening message wise in her, my, in her ex-husband home, but I do know what my sister's message is in her home. And, you know, all we can ever do is the best given our context. And when you say this is messy, that's what I love about this subject is that there's so much gray area and Mm -hmm. every child is different. Every child's risk picture is going to be different. So understanding the risk and the prevention measures that might work best with our kid, um, you know, that's, that's doing the best we can do. And we can't Mm -hmm. ask any more of ourselves than that. Yeah. Listeners, if you could see us, Jen and I pretty much for the last (laughs) 40 minutes have just been sitting here nodding our heads up and down. Yes, 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 that, yes, yes. So much yes, Jessica. I have the coolest job in the world, which is to get curious about something. Yes. Be the total research geek that I am. I mean, I'm turned around so you can't see it, but the whole entire office, in fact, I'm looking at a bunch of the books we've been talking about. Um, my whole office is filled with research. I get to just, I'm about to start my third book and all, and I'm Yay. so looking forward to a summer of just a deep dive into the research. And I'm married to, I'm married to a statistician, a scientist. Oh, so oh, that um, helps. <laughs> yeah. So every once in a while, if I'm looking at something and I'm like, I don't know, this seems kind of this study, uh, it says one thing, but I don't know. And I'll hand it to him. And he's like, yeah, both the P value here and the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he'll help me understand, you know, I, I have the in-house statistician. So, and then my job is to take all of that, figure out how it all fits together and then write about it for, mm-hmm. you know, an audience that doesn't care about half the stuff that's in the article. I don't care about you know, P-values, if you, Jessica. Well, I'm telling you, if you could see, if you could see the edits on my books from my editor, she's so great. They're like, yeah, your reader doesn't care about this yeah. cut. Yeah, your reader doesn't care about this cut. And so my job is to translate this stuff in a way that, and especially since I write about hard topics, I write about mm-hmm. overparenting and I write about substance abuse and those are challenging things. And so I have to use humor and I have to use accessible language. And more than anything else, I have to use stories. And so I want to just take this quick opportunity to do a shout out to Brian and Georgia, who are the two of the adult now adults, then children in the book. Uh, By the way, those are their real names. They felt very, very strongly about using their real names. They both said the hell we have been through will be worth it if our story helps other people. So Brian and Georgia, I am indebted to them like crazy. Um, I'm so proud of them. They're both in really good places now. Yeah. Those stories, I think as a, as an English teacher, of course, I, I think that the best learning always happens through stories. So listeners, I want to um, encourage you all to take a moment, maybe many moments and sit with the, some of this information from this podcast. If you get the book, take some time to sit with it as well, because Many of us have families that have been touched in some way by substance use. Even if your family is the teetotaling family, sometimes you find out that that teetotaling happened because there was a history of abuse a generation Mm -hmm. beyond. And those impacts can take a long time. I spent 
half an hour this morning journaling and untangling some of the issues and things in, in my family. So we can talk about this from the clinical aspect and the practical aspect. If this is bringing up um, emotional stuff and family stuff for you, do take some time, take care of yourself. Jessica, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about uh, letting it marinate and percolate you know, mm-hmm. as you're coming with this book, I think a lot of us adults are going to need to do this with the information. Yeah. Many of us have not really ever looked at the elephant in the room or looked at our own use. And that's a part of this process as well. It's one of the hardest parts of this process. And as you said, the first time I had to face it head on with my father, who's the one who intervened on me, did a little intervention on me. I did, I threw up. I mean, it was so upsetting and so challenging, but the more I can tell you right now, the more you talk about it, the easier it gets every time. And I've, and it's this, uh, writing this book has opened conversations with extended family that I never expect we would be Uh, capable of having mainly because secrecy is such a big part of my family legacy. The book is the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence. You know, I'm going to put the link in the show notes, Jessica. I know that pre-pandemic, you did a lot of traveling around and speaking. Is any of that starting to resume? Uh, You know, I just booked my first in-person. It's a private event. It's small um, this summer. I am not uh, vaccinated yet because I'm 50 and I'm otherwise healthy. So I'm next week is my first shot, but hopefully once, you know, once that happens um, and people start getting more comfortable with the idea, yes. In the meantime, I'm doing a lot of virtual events. Those are all listed at jessicalehi.com. You held up the book. If anyone wants a signed copy of the book, two Vermont bookstores are helping me with that. I go Ah. there and I sign copies and they ship them out for me. So you can go to jessicalehi.com for signed copies of either Gift of Failure or The Addiction Inoculation. I love that, that you're working with independent booksellers and we can support them in that way. We encourage all of our listeners to buy their books from independent booksellers. If It's been a tough year for them. And, you know, even though book sales have gone up, it has been a tough year for them. Um, And they are just, uh, they're a place of refuge for me and always have been. So Mm -hmm. I will continue to support as much as humanly possible. Jessica, thank you so much for your work on behalf of all of our families. Thank you for sharing your very personal story and all the results of all that research. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really, I love that it's, that it's something that I hope can prevent kids from ending up in places like my rehab classroom in the first place. Uh, Jessica Leahy does it again. She is an amazing author, researcher, human being. Again, if you're struggling, you do not have to struggle alone. If you're worried about your boy, if you just like to up-level a notch or two, get on the phone with me. You can schedule a free breakthrough session. Go to boysalive.com call. You don't have to go this alone. We are here to support you, both Jen and I. Applaud everything you're doing. Thanks again for joining us for On Boys.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.